in the weeks before. We've looked at Genesis chapter 1 and 2 in which God reveals to us how the world was created, how he brought it into being. In chapter 1, we have creation of very general strokes. In chapter 2, he narrows down in the very specifics of the creation of man as male and female. They're in the Garden of Eden. All is bliss. There is no sin. We came to chapter 3. We saw there the introduction of sin as both Adam and Eve eat of the fruit that God had specifically denied to them. Buried, however, in Genesis chapter 3 is that what we call the first seed of the gospel. That first idea that there would be a conflict that there would be salvation. Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15. And this is a very important verse for us as we come into chapter 4. So I want you to focus on it just briefly here. Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15. God is cursing the serpent here after the fall in the garden. And he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will, there's a singular use there, crush, or again, the better translation would be strike, the better translation of the Hebrew would be strike your head and you will strike his heel. We find here this prophecy of a conflict between the godly and the ungodly. Again, it's not just women hate snakes or something like that. That's not the point. But there's this ungodly offspring, and there will be this godly offspring, and they will be in constant conflict. And we see that conflict going on in our own day. In chapter 3 and verse 20, we see that Adam names his wife Eve because she would become the mother of all the living. And as we took time to work through that phrase, it means that Adam is responding in faith to what God promised. There will be a crushing of the serpent's head. There will be someone born somewhere along the way. We know, of course, that it's a Redeemer. It's Jesus Christ. But he doesn't know that. He just responds in faith that somewhere, somehow, Satan's head will be crushed through the seed of the woman, through this godly society or this godly offspring. Now, as we come to chapter 4, the conflict between the children of the serpent and the children of the woman begins to take shape. In chapter 4, we are introduced to the godless, worldly society. The first man in this godless line is Cain. But please understand that in this narrative, we do not merely learn about some ancient man living long ago. We learn about ourselves. When Adam and Eve sinned, their nature was immediately corrupted. Theologians call it human depravity. And as their children, the Bible teaches and experience confirms that humanity remains subjected to the sin nature. So as we observe Cain on the stage of history this morning, we must realize that we are seeing a mirror image of our own depravity, of our inherent capacity and natural bent to resist the purposes of our Creator. I've been reading the Confessions of St. Augustine recently. In the Confessions, Augustine writes his autobiography as a long prayer to God. The whole thing is just confession to God of his own sin from start to finish. On some intriguing reading, read St. Augustine as he explains how he knows he was depraved as an infant. It's incredible reading. But he takes it right from birth uh, up to the present. And it is one of the earliest autobiographies. It was written, just think of this, 1,600 years ago. Now you imagine what the world was like 1,600 years ago. That's a very different world. Yet I have trouble putting this book down right now 
Because although our circumstances are so very different, I continue to feel that he is writing my biography as much as his. On nearly every page, he lays bare the sins of my own soul. He puts into words the agonizing struggles that I have personally endured with sin over my days. As he talks about infancy, as he talks about early childhood, as he talks about his teen years, I feel that he's talking about me. It's a man living in Africa, ancient Africa, 1,600 years ago. What does he know about me? You see, we're so accustomed to thinking about us in isolation in our culture But what we must understand is that there is something called the sin nature. And this book lays bare that nature on every page. I hasten to say it's not a discouraging book to me. It's a humbling book. But not discouraging because like Augustine or Augustine, I have come to know the joy of forgiven sin. Before us today in Genesis 4, we have something like that. We find the history of a sinful man. And in these divinely inspired words, we find a reflection of our own depravity. Now that might seem uh, something less than exciting to you, to look into the mirror and to see the sinfulness and all the ugliness of your own soul. But there's hope in these words. The benefit to us is that we watch this narrative unfold, and as we do, by God's grace, the Holy Spirit will use it as a mirror by which we see not only Cain, but ourselves, by which we see not only ourselves, but our God. And as we see how the sin nature operates, we're thereby equipped to better resist it. The stage is set in verses 1 and 2. Adam lay with his wife Eve, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. A better translation of the Hebrew, the original text is of lay, would be no. Sexual intimacy is described in words of knowledge. Adam and Eve enjoyed heterosexual intimacy within the confines of marriage. And as God intended, this union produced a child. She gave birth to Cain. Second part of verse 1, she said, with the help of the Lord, I brought forth a man. Those are exciting words. She's rejoicing with this birth. With the help, that phrase is also very difficult to translate into English, and there's some debate on it, but I think we have the right meaning here, that with the help of the Lord, I have given birth. Now think back of maybe what she's saying. What has happened because of sin? She's been cursed, and in the giving of birth, there's going to be great pain. Because of her sin, God has cursed Eve in this painful experience, but Eve has not cursed God. She realizes the consequences of her sin, but labored in the conviction that God would help her, and he did. Now we think back on chapter 3 and verse 15. Eve would be the mother of a godly line. The process has begun, though I'm sure very different results than Eve anticipated. Uh, Unbeknownst to her, she has just given birth to the first individual of the godless line. I don't think she probably understood that or hoped for that, certainly. But this little baby was destined to initiate that conflict between the godly and the ungodly on earth as the first representative of the world. Verse 2 continues to set the scene. Later she gave birth to his brother, Abel. Now Abel kept flocks and Cain worked the soil. Very little is said about Abel because I don't think he's the emphasis of the narrative here in Genesis 4. But we find here the occupation of these two boys. Abel keeps flocks. 
The idea here is that he is a tender of sheep and or goats. And Cain is a farmer, which echoes chapter 2, chapter 3. You can kind of hear it there. Uh, Adam is cursed from the ground, but he's the cultivator of the ground. These young men are just doing good work. These are the initial stages of human civilization. There's a diversity to occupation, and they both are involved, I think, in a noble work. But a crisis develops. As the plot develops, there's always some kind of problem that has to be solved. There's something that goes on. And that's what takes place beginning in verse 3. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord, but Abel brought fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. This crisis is ironically occasioned by the worship of God. This act of offering, let me just stop at this for a moment. This act assumes that God has communicated with Adam and Eve and Cain and Abel something about offerings. We see reflections of it later in the Old Testament, but there's something that God has said to them about what is an appropriate offering and how you bring offerings to God. In this primitive sense, then, they are beginning to understand that sinners are not able to stand before God on their own merit. There's need of an offering. Cain, a farmer brings produce. Abel, the brother of, or the tender of flocks, rather brings a lamb. Now we notice there in the middle of verse 4, it says that the Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. The problem develops. The text does not tell us why God responded in this way to Cain and Abel. The word offering, I think, is a very general Hebrew word that refers to grain offerings as well as to animal offerings. On the one hand, you see that phrase there, the fat portions and the firstborn of the flock, and it indicates that Abel is bringing, according to God's instruction, a very appropriate sacrifice. These descriptive phrases don't mean much to us, the fat portions and the firstborn and the like, but to the original readers of this text, they would have immediately said, I I understand that. They're very familiar with these words and they're understanding that this is ritual sacrifice because under the Mosaic law, these things are all laid out as to how you bring a sacrifice. But this terminology indicates that Abel brought the very best that he could bring in conformity with God's instructions. What did Cain do? In contrast, God looks with disfavor on Cain and on Cain's sacrifice. So I think it's fair to say that Cain's sacrifice was inappropriate because there was something wrong with Cain. He looked on Cain and he wasn't happy. Therefore, he looked on his sacrifice and he wasn't happy either. God's not pleased with Cain or his sacrifice offered to God. But what is important for us to note, whatever the reason for that is, we talked about that for the last hour in the adult class, but whatever the reason is, the main point of the text you've got to get this, is the last phrase in verse 5. So Cain was very angry and his face was downcast. Now as the text develops, that is the significance of what's developing here. To this point, we're kind of just laying the stage. The problem develops, but here's the human response to God's disfavor. Cain is angry and his face is downcast or his face falls. You know, whenever God looks with disfavor upon us, it is a very gracious warning. But Cain did not heed the warning. Instead, he was deeply offended. Anger. I don't think here, as the text will develop, it's not an explosive anger. He doesn't blow up with God and start throwing things at him. It's a deep inner anger, a seething anger. There's a cauldron that's boiling now in Cain's uh, heart. 
It says that his face fell. It means that he was deeply offended at the rebuke. You've maybe had that experience from time to time. You're going along thinking you're doing something great and somebody issues a word of rebuke and it it just hits you hard right between the eyes. He's devastated. He's hurt. Cain does not move, however, to align himself with God. Instead, he sulks. And from this point in the text, we witness the tragic demise of Cain. And in this demise, we learn invaluable truths about the sin nature. Through Cain's example, God, in a sense, opens a window into our hearts and instructs us concerning what we might call the downward spiral of sin. We've already witnessed the first step on that downward spiral. We become aware of God's disfavor, but we resist it. God pricks our conscience. Do you know that experience? God puts a pin in your conscience. He he puts his finger down on the sore spot inside and he moves it around. There's a thorn in your heart and he picks at it. God pricks your conscience in some way, but we get angry. We become sullen or we throw up our hands in discouragement and frustration. He might prick our conscience just directly. It might be something that we read in the Bible that stings our soul. Or we may find ourselves on the receiving end of the rebuke of a friend, of an author, of a preacher. Whatever God uses to awaken us to our sin, we resist. We put up a wall. We don't like it. The spiral continues downward. And the second step of the slippery slope is seen in verses 6 and 7, where God begins to counsel Cain. Verse 6, read it there in your text if you would. Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? Those of you that have been with us through the series, you, you hear it, don't you? The questions of God. He's always questioning. It's part of his gracious act with the lost. Remember what Adam, where are you? Adam's fallen into sin. God doesn't fry him from heaven. He doesn't hit him with a baseball bat. He just asks a simple question. Where are you? You're running. Where are you? He does that here with Cain as well. He asks the question, Cain, why are you angry? It's kind of like a parent sitting down with a child. It's sulking and, and just mad and steaming. And you know why they're mad. But you sit them down on the couch. You put your arm around and say, listen, what's got you? Why are you angry? You're counseling. You want to understand and you want them to understand why they're sulking. That's what God does here with Cain. I'll tell you what. Cain should have stopped and thought long and hard about these questions. If he'd answered them, there would have been some solution to his problem. He should have answered these questions carefully. And I say again that it's a reflection of us and our life. Do you practice the discipline of thinking through conviction. Do you know what that means? To think through conviction. Cain should have probably thought something like, well, I'm mad and I'm hurt because God's not pleased with my attitude and I'm jealous of my brother's righteousness. God likes him and he doesn't like me. Well, I know God's righteous and I guess if he is and I'm supposed to be worshiping him, then he ought to be able to tell me how to do it. I guess the one who should really be angry here is God, not me. But Cain doesn't reason through the conviction. God begins to teach Cain, attempting to draw him toward the right attitude in verse 7. Notice it there. If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? Cain, what's bugging you? 
He doesn't answer that. He doesn't really look at it. But then he looks, then God goes to him and says, listen, if you do what's right, won't you be accepted? Cain, I'm not pleased with you now. But all you have to do to regain my favor is to do what is right. But Cain, please be warned. Second part of verse 7. But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door and it desires to have you. You must master it. Cain, you must change. Your attitude toward me is all wrong. And the danger is that if you don't change, sin will pounce on you. These words issue fair warning. Cain, sin longs to sink its teeth into you. You must master it, and you must master it right now. But rather than listen to God, the narrative reveals that Cain permits sin to pounce on him. There is, in the text at least, a very eerie silence coming from Cain. He doesn't say anything in the text. The point is he has nothing to say. God has issued the warning, but there there is no response to it. Step one, let's just review it. The downward spiral of sin, we become aware of God's disfavor, but we resist it. We're offended. We put up a wall. Step two, God warns us, but we ignore him. The third step downward is that we fall into deeper sin. One commentator said this, Now the account proceeds in a drastic manner to show what possibilities for development lay in the sin which had by this time fastened itself strongly upon man. Possibilities for evil that no man would have suspected lay hidden in sin. Is he right? Let's read verse 8. Now Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go to the field. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. The Hebrew text there uh, reads actually, now Cain spoke to his brother and when they were in the field, it added here the idea of let's go to the field. But I think it's probably the point. He's getting him out. He's luring him out to the field. Now 1 John 3 helps us here in that it says uh, concerning the, the, the intensity and the resentfulness of Cain, It says this, do not be like Cain who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. Hear it? He belonged to the evil one. He's of the seed of the serpent. And why did he murder him? Here's his attitude. Because his actions were evil and his brothers were righteous. Rather than deal with a sinful attitude, Cain becomes increasingly resentful of his brother and he plots murder. This initiates the war between the godly seed and the ungodly seed. The children of God represented by Abel and the children of the world represented by Cain. Well, folks, round one goes to the world. Abel lays in his own blood in the field. and Cain refused to deal with this sinful heart attitude and the result is that he sinks to a far deeper depth of depravity than we could imagine. In just two generations, humanity has gone from simple disregard of God's word and eating fruit to the murder of one's own brother. It is history's initial act of persecution. Round one goes to the world, and it seems that the world has still got the upper hand. Abel had done nothing to offend either God or his brother. But Abel's righteous deeds were a rebuke to Cain. And rather than deal with God, Cain takes out his anger on Abel. This conflict then between the offspring of the serpent and the offspring of the woman continues. There are some of you who may face that. I know there are some of you who have relatives and close friends that don't know the Lord. 
and they make life a little miserable for you. There are a number of you that are in a public school situation, and when you take a stand for God, there's people who like to put the screws down and make life a little miserable for you. We don't face a whole lot of difficulty and a whole lot of persecution in our setting, but there is always going to be this conflict between the world and, and God's people. And when we face that situation, Jesus taught us that we are not to be frustrated. We are not to be fearful. We are not to hide in a corner. What we're to do is we're to say, I'm with Abel. Abel got killed. Abel was murdered. Jesus was murdered. But we can say in such times, I am one of Abel's people. And that's a good thing to say. I'm not one of Cain's people who stands with Satan. I'm not part of his offspring. Remember what Jesus said on the Sermon on the Mount, when people persecute you, leap for joy. Oh, that's a weird response. Somebody hurts you. Somebody, you're doing what's right, and they take advantage of you, and they hurt you because they don't like Jesus. He says, leap for joy. Why? Because great is your reward in heaven. You see, Abel's people don't win down here. Abel's people win in the next life and through eternity. I'm glad to be with the people of Abel, with the people of God. It isn't, we don't always win the battles down here, but we look forward with hope to a time when God writes the record. Well, as we come back to the text, though, Abel is dead. The first martyr has fallen, but Cain hasn't accomplished anything. He still has to deal with God. The first step on the downward spiral of sin, we become aware of God's disfavor, but we resist it. Secondly, God warns us, but we ignore him. Thirdly, we then fall into deeper sin, and step four, we become further alienated from God. God again pursues Cain in verse 9. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is your brother Abel? It's a gracious question. God doesn't strike him dead. He puts his arm around him and says, where's, where's Abel? I don't know. He replied, verse 9, am I my brother's keeper? Well, I'll tell you one thing, dead, dead men don't move. Cain knew exactly where Abel was. He knew where he killed him. He knew where he put him. I don't know what he did with him, but he knew where Cain was. It's a bold-faced lie. And Cain's relationship with God has deteriorated to the point, to the degree, that he dares to rebuke God. Am I my brother's keeper? You see how his relationship with the Lord continues to deteriorate. It continues to go to deeper depths of depravity. First he lies, and then he challenges God with the appropriateness of his own question. And his words are embarrassingly self-incriminating. Why did he have to lie about his brother's whereabouts? And why so touchy about being asked where he is? Cain can't even own up to his own actions by this point. He slips so far away in his relationship with God that he's reduced to deceit and to blaming God. Well, verse 10, the Lord had about enough of that. And the Lord says, what have you done? He turns from the role of interrogator to that of prosecutor. What have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. The crying blood is a common Hebrew idiom used to describe the groans of the innocent who are brutalized. No one else may perceive their injuries, the injuries faced by the oppressed, but the supreme judge of the universe hears every cry. There's a cry, a cry that's going up from this earth today. We don't hear it with our ears, but God does. 
There is in China, there is in Vietnam, there is in North Korea, and many of the places in that portion of the world spreading throughout the Islamic countries. There are in these countries today, right now as I speak, people in prison who are being starved to death and who are being beaten and tortured and separated from their families simply because they believe that Jesus is the Son of God. They've done nothing else wrong to violate the laws of the land. They just have come to know Christ as Savior and to seek to tell others about Him. That's all they've done, and they're suffering. We just talked Wednesday night and prayed for three individuals in great suffering because of their stand for Jesus Christ. Actually, two individuals, and then the third was just the country. But There are people suffering as I speak. The world doesn't hear their groans. As a matter of fact, the world likes to ignore their groans. Our country likes to ignore their groans to some degree. We're a lot more concerned about finances than we are about the persecuted church around the world. But when believers are killed for righteousness, God hears their blood crying for vengeance. He won't always remain still. I hear your brother's blood crying to me. Where is he? Verse 11, now you are under a curse and driven from the ground which opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it will no longer yield its crops for you. You will be a restless wanderer on the earth. Cain is not banned from the earth, but the ground is uniquely cursed in regards to his efforts. The ground already been cursed in Adam's sin, but Cain's suffering is a heightened curse He'll no longer be able to cultivate the soil with any success. And so he will become what's translated here, a restless wanderer. The King James, a fugitive and a vagabond. It's a difficult phrase to translate, but I think it's pretty close to the idea of a wandering fugitive. A man without a country, in a sense. Cain's sin has alienated him from God, and he thereby forfeits the joy of identifying with any of the known communities of the primitive world. And I think by this time there were communities developing. Adam and Eve had children. There was no law at that time. There was no genetic reason at that time because of the gene pool for them not to intermarry, brothers and sisters. That's a horrifying thought to us, but that's what happened. That's where Cain got his wife. And there is a civilization that's developed by this point. There are people that are living on the earth and uh, having children, and, and uh, civilization is developing, but Abel's not going to be, or Cain's not going to be able to identify with any one of them. He's going to be an outsider, an outcast. Now, the next words in the text, I have to say, are a little bit confusing, but I, they strike me as very sad, sad words. They strike me as two mates negotiating a divorce. There has been an irreconcilable breakdown in the relationship between Cain and God, and now they're just talking out the details. Verse 13, Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is more than I can bear. Today you're driving me from the land. I'll be hidden from your presence. I'll be a restless wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Strike you as a repentant heart? just negotiating the details of his alienation from God. He's not concerned about a broken relationship with God. He's concerned about his own neck. The murderer offers no words of remorse, only fear that he might be murdered. Why the children of Adam and Eve then living on the earth might kill Cain, we don't know. But we see that God certainly responds graciously to this man. 
Verse 15, the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, he will suffer vengeance seven times over. Then the Lord put a mark on Cain so that no one who found him would kill him. We don't know what that mark was, but some way God protects him. That is incredible. Cain has just murdered Abel, the first representative of the offspring of the woman that is righteous. But God shifts here incredibly from prosecutor to protector. And all of those who struggle with the idea that God could, quote unquote, allow sin, that's what we think. We don't understand God. He ordains evil. He's not the author of it. He doesn't create it. He doesn't make it in the sense that he doesn't do it. He's not guilty. But God knew from eternity past there would be a godless line. He doesn't kill it off. Because in all of it, he is going to show us as people how righteousness triumphs, how salvation is won, how gracious God is to this fallen world. We are here, of course, in a very primitive setting with no formal law. Later, God will say whoever kills should be killed in Genesis chapter 6, but not at this point. And God can decide as he chooses. And so he gives Cain protection. Notice verse 16. Again, very sad, sad words. So Cain went out from the Lord's presence and lived in the land of Nod, east of Eden. The divorce is final. He goes, you notice that phrase there, from the Lord's presence. That's a horrifying phrase. It confirms Cain's alienation from his creator. Nod, that Hebrew word, means wandering. So the wanderer ends up in the city of wandering. And it reflects the punishment that Cain has been assigned to bear. He settles in the land of Nod because he's wandered away from the presence of God. And this downward spiraling journey leads Cain to the east the direction in which the enemies of God's people will be found later in the Old Testament scriptures. The seed of the serpent, the offspring of the serpent, has won this round and has walked away from God. Now this passage is then vital to our understanding of the entire Bible because the offspring of the serpent, Cain, the man of the world, represents that line and it will be continued through him. There's many genealogies here in Genesis that will trace that godless line through him. We know, of course, that it's not a matter of mere uh, offspring. It's not a matter of our family lineage. It's a matter of our heart and our spirit. And whether or not we are, as Paul put it, the sons of Abraham through faith. That is, through faith we become part of the godly. Through faith or disbelief we decide which line we'll be in. So it's an important passage that way as we put it together in all the scripture. This is man number one who stands to represent the worldly line. But this passage carries a very personal application as well. The Holy Spirit illustrates for us the workings of the sin nature we find this downward spiral of unrepentant sin. And if you're with me, if you're awake, it's got to resonate with who you are and your experiences of life. Number one, we become aware of God's favor, but we resist it. Number two, God warns us about our sin, but we ignore him. Number three, we then fall deeper into the clutches of sin. And number four, rather than be repent, we walk in further alienation from God. Are you anywhere on that continuum today? The answer is to do exactly what Cain didn't do. It's to repent. Last week, a man I spoke with a man, and in his words, my conscience was pricked. What he said was right. 
But in my sinfulness, I took what he said and I began to twist it and I became resentful of him. God brought that to my attention. I realized that through that man's words, God was sending a message to me and I had to repent right then and there. That's a dangerous spot to be at. Where the conviction of the Spirit has come and you twist it to focus negatively on the person that sent the message. It's dangerous. We have to nip that in the bud. We must realize that when God convicts us of sin, we cannot take out our anger on someone else. We need to change. Again, how it resonates, I know with my own experience, I'm sure with yours if you're with me. I remember as an 18-year-old believer in Christ, sitting in a car, driving in a car, a Christian friend rebuked me for a glaring deficiency in my life. I was living in sin. He sensed it. And I knew it. He offered me, it's, it's interesting as I think back on this, not a word so much of rebuke, he just asked me a question. And in that question, the conviction of the Spirit struck me. And I did exactly what Cain did here. I resisted it. There was a warning from God and I rejected it and I blew up in anger at this friend. I was hurt, I was angered, and I lashed out. And what I did after I lashed out was I lied to it to cover myself. And that process led to further sin in my life in a long pattern of having to come back to God through repentance. As God says here to Cain, sin crouches in the weeds and we must, by God's grace, resist it. If you're awake, this passage speaks truth. You know how difficult it is to respond humbly and obediently to God's rebuke, but you have to do it. I would say if you really have genuine faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, that in the end you will do it. I so wonder about those who, in my experience as a pastor, as I counsel with people or in the preaching, or maybe just in some other aspect of church life, I so wonder about those people who receive a direct word from God about sin in their life, and they leave and they never come back because they've been hurt by someone. Now, sometimes that might be the case, and that would certainly be wrong, but so often they've been convicted by the Spirit of God. That's a dangerous, dangerous path. We learn that here in the life of Cain. If you're tangled in the web of sin, you're resisting over and over again God's rebuke. You are down, walking down a path of alienation from God. There's different degrees of it. But what you must do today and now is to turn. Father, help us to do that. With sin crouching at the 